Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast, Anessa. Good to have you on Battle Rhythm. Uh, this is Anessa Kimball, uh, professor at Laval University and co-director of the CSN, leading a couple different projects for us. Climate Security Center of Excellence Research Project, as well as the overall effort to understand security stuff in the world. How are you doing, Anessa? I'm great. How are you, Steve? Thanks for inviting me back. It's a standing invitation. You are one of our regular co-hosts. We're always glad to have you here. So since we're both kind of NATO-ish people, it's been a NATO-ish kind of week with tanks and with membership and all that kind of stuff. So I thought we should get into it. When you first heard that Canada was going to send four tanks, four Leopard 2s to Ukraine, what was your reaction? Well, I mean, I think on the one hand, as somebody that's been watching this for a while, it's a bit of about time, you know, seeing this is a uh, more muscled, uh, one would say, donation to the effort. I think it looks, it's a little bit of a, you know, it suggests there's a bit of a turn that we're seeing these, what would be more enhanced offensive equipment donations. I think that it's symbolic more than going to make very much of a difference functionally, one might say. But again, it goes quite well with Canada wanting to show that it is doing its fair share and, you know, uh, picking up part of its burden. As you may know, an excellent book came out on burden sharing this month by Kimball, and it was called Beyond 2%. And so if you're interested in it, my gosh, she might have a lot to say about it. Well, the fun thing about this is that one of the standard patterns in Canadian behavior has always been something I would say would be in doing the doing the most we can do, which is the least we can do, or doing the least we can do by doing the most we can do, which is four tanks is is not much. A lot of our allies gave somewhere in the order between eight and 12 tanks. And so together, collectively, we're providing significant uh, improvement on the ability for the Ukrainians to engage in counteroffenses, to take their, their territory back. But man, I just thought four was really low. I had conversations with some folks within the army who were like, yeah, we, we thought the ass was be more than that. We were okay with that. Obviously within the army, there might be divisions about that. I'm not exactly sure what they were thinking because it, yes, we're doing this now. We were slow to make this decision. It was obviously something that had been motioned for quite some time. We knew that Germany was eventually going to agree to allow those who bought these weapon systems from Germany to re-export them. The Germans control the license to this, so therefore we just couldn't do it without that because it would violate all kinds of agreements with, with Germany. And given that we're an arms exporting country, we really don't want to have those who receive arms violate the licenses because we wouldn't want our weapon systems to end up in the wrong hands. But four? My God, that's just a, as token as token can be. And I know that eight is just two times four, so it's not a lot, but that would represent 10% 
of our tank capacity. We sent for 10% of our howitzers. We have roughly 30, what, 36 howitzers. And we sent four of them, the 777s to, to Ukraine. And they've been pretty, pretty useful. And so I would have thought we would have sent eight. I thought the magic number was somewhere between eight and 12. Now, the, the reality is, is that we don't have that many operational tanks. Tanks break down. These tanks break down a lot. And so the question would be, how much does this affect our readiness? That is, if we give eight or 10 or 12 tanks, then that means that it may be that we don't have that enough tanks to exercise with, to train our forces so that way they can be capable to engage in tank warfare. But I think there's something that has been hinted at that's also going on here, which is I believe that we have made a commitment to NATO to send tanks to buttress NATO in case of something bad going on in Europe. And so that might be the thing that's that Anand is thinking about, that Air is thinking about, that we can't send those tanks because ultimately if the balloon goes up in Europe and we have to fight the Russians in Latvia, we have to then ship whatever number of tanks to, to Latvia or to wherever the, the front is. And so that might be what's in their heads. But if it's in their heads, say it out loud. We've made this commitment. You know, this means that we only have this many tanks to give. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure NATO at this moment in time would say, oh, wait, that commitment you made, it's been overcome by events. We'd rather have use these tanks to actually destroy Russian tanks right now rather than theoretically use them in some sort of offensive that's not going to happen. So I, I think they could have definitely messaged us much better to explain why four, because it just seems to be the very, very, very least we can do. I, I'm pretty sure we could have done more. Yeah. And well, and like, I wonder if it, it is a bit because there are there is a little bit of some, you know, I mean, at least in Quebec province, there's a little bit of the backlash discourse that, you know, tanks are not the same as, you know, some of the other things that we were sending, which were much more clearly defensive type aspects. And so, you know, does this represent kind of, you know, a change of position, one might say. Um, and then, of course, the whole cost thing, as we know. Comparatively, Quebec province tends to be allergic to defense spending as this continues to add mm. up. I wonder if there's a little bit of it's easier if we do less and then we say we we might have more. And then, like you said, the other aspect is, would we really want to let everyone know publicly how close it is in terms of what we have and what we can do, what we would train with? Right. Would we really want them to know the difference between four and eight might actually mean we can't train appropriately or exercise enough with our partners and allies in the, the commitments that we have made? Uh, maybe that's uncomfortably too transparent for Ottawa. I think you're right that Ottawa might be very uncomfortable about being transparent about this. But we live in an uncomfortable time. There's a war going on in, in, in Europe. And the Ukrainians need this weapon system in order to take their territory back. We have promised to help the Ukrainians become whole and free once again. And to do that, we just can't ask the Russians nicely. What tanks are very good for are breaching the defense of the other side. And what the Russians did was they seized the t territory of Ukraine and then they built up trenches and other other defenses. And you just simply can't knock on the door. You can't send infantry troops out there. Mm -hmm. You have to use tanks. Tanks are the best way to do it, even though we thought they were obsolete six months ago. And so I think that we need to help the Ukrainians do this. This is what our policy is. Again, there's this larger dynamic of what are our tanks for? Our tanks are not for fighting the Chinese. That's exactly. not what they're for. And they're really probably not for thwarting the North Koreans. Yeah. And they're not for breaking into grape drying huts in Afghanistan because we're done with that. We're not going back. So what are our tanks for in the in the 2020s? Therefore, thwarting the Russians. And either we could be driving them or the Ukrainians could be driving them. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a pretty good deal to have the Ukrainians do our dirty work for us. 
Of course, that's also part of, you know, the challenge that uh, Canada, we already know Canada, Canada's defense forces face a challenge in terms of um, recruiting. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there is some reflection upon, you know, this activity in Ukraine, how is this going to affect military recruitment writ large in uh, a lot of these allied states? The fact that 10 years ago, the you know, what, what people were getting into the military for was, you know, potentially fighting in Afghanistan. And, you know, this idea of a kind of European based, you know, that that Cold War-esque, it was, it was really not in our imaginations a decade ago very much. And now I find, you know, it's kind of, we, we've returned to this in a uh, sense in, in the last year. And I think that it's been a little bit, it's, it's a challenge as well for how they've been thinking about, you know, because we had a strategy, a, a purchasing strategy and defense policy mm-hmm. strategy that was very much about these other t- things that we wanted our military to do. And now we're kind of back with the classics and it's a little bit like, oh, are we, you know, do we have all of our bases covered there? And as I've been saying in other places, the whole idea during the Afghanistan war was we don't need anti-aircraft systems because the Taliban don't have aircraft. That was a risk that we understood that we would like to have all these different things, but because we're doing this one thing, we don't need this weapon system at this moment in time. And once the thing is over with, we'll try to get back in that business. And so I think right now, okay, it might diminish our training and we can't do combined arms exercises in Canada. If we don't have a bunch of tanks lying around, it play a role in that. I get that. Other hand, we have our troops constantly training in Latvia with other people's tanks. So it's not like that capacity is being completely lost in the Canadian military if we weren't doing as much of it here. But that's it's a risk. It's absolutely a risk. But international relations is about competing risks. And the alternative as risk well, is if we if don't give start, enough... What you're doing as well, if you start kind of relying on that, is you're also distancing kind of your regular force that's deployed from your reserve force, right? Because there's a bit more of, at least in the Canadian forces of movement towards, you can have kind of a, a career, I don't know how they would say this, but they're they're thinking more and more of options where you would do less deploying or less far deploying to kind of reconcile the family, mm-hmm. you know, forces type deal. And so if you're if you're doing this, right, if you're going to start a strategy where the training and exercises are going to be done in context of, you know, going to Europe or going other places to do this, you're simply adding costs. Right? Well, but the, 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 no, but. Uh, the thing is, we're already doing this. We already have yeah. troops in Latvia as Absolutely. part of our, the hands for presence doing the training all the time. All I'm saying is, if we have some reduction of our training in Canada, because we don't have tanks here, because we've given them 10 of them, let's say, rather than four, to Ukraine, it doesn't mean the Canadian forces aren't training on tanks and aren't training doing combined oh, no. training operations. They're just getting it in a different way. And I think in some ways it's cheaper to do it this way, because guess what? Again, if we give these tanks to the... Ukrainians, then they're on the hook for staffing them and handling them. And that means that that's less money being spent over here. Because if we're down 10% across the board in the Canadian Armed Forces, that probably means we're down 10% or something like it amongst the armored group. So guess what? We have fewer people to man those tanks. So I'm just saying that we have to evaluate competing risks. And if we don't give the Ukrainians what they need to eject the Russians from their territory, that war will go on and on and on. And that will impose other costs upon us. And so it seems to me that in the balancing of risks, not eliminating risks, but balancing them, some reduction in our readiness to fight with our own tanks because we've given some of them away is acceptable because it helps us manage other risks. Uh, On the other hand, 
in the news, there's all of the kinds of things that are spilling out of this war. So for instance, our support for Ukraine has led to concerns about cyber attacks on us by Russian associated hacking groups. So do you think this should give us pause about supporting the Ukrainians? Uh, are there other things that are going on that, that you suggest would should cause us to reduce our support or to moderate our support? Or are you thinking that we should continue guns ablazing or at least giving all the guns so that way the Ukrainians can keep their guns ablazing? Well, I think on the, on the one hand, as we know, you know, it's a strategy that for the sending costs is is not nearly as much as the potential cost that re the recipient might have, right? So, you know, it is kind of a, a strategy that is used in these asymmetric circumstances, and so it's not surprising that there is be there there is more targeting. I think this would be also a predictable, you know, what we would say transaction cost of of what this is. I, you know, we know we knew that the Russians were were already hacking, and so it would not have been smart for us to think that they would be hacking less if we started doing more. Same thing with disinformation. And so mm. I think, you know, I, I often think about these things are, you know, they're kind of the the threshold type goods. You have to have a minimal level of defense in order to be able to do anything, but you're always going to be, but because the adversary is always going to be trying to best you, you cannot rest on your laurels. You, you always have to be kind of adapting and modifying and evolving with the threat. And I think that that's, more the challenge for Canada is that we saw it to Canada a while to kind of create a cybersecurity strategy to get everything in a row. Can it adapt and move as quickly on its feet to respond as we see Russia doing with the attacking? I think that that is a little bit more the challenge than, you know, will there be less? I think it's more, you know, can we adapt at least in Canada and, and fight that in my viewpoint? Yeah, I, th I think that's the right way to put it, which again, we're talking about a world of competing risks. And if we reduce our support, is that going to reduce the risk that we face from cyber attacks? And I don't think it really will. I have, in the course of this war, been worried about some forms of escalation and re reactions, but not others. So I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about no-fly zones in March. Mm, yes. I thought that was foolish because I thought that, yeah, I thought there's a bright shining line between us killing Russians and the Ukrainians killing Russians with stuff we give them. And that's more or less proven to be the case that the stuff that we've given to the to the Ukrainians has not caused us to actually have this war expand beyond the territory of Russia, except for the cyber stuff. And a couple of accidental. Yeah, the, you know, one one missile, one awry. But in terms of tanks, it is a significant move, but it's still keeping the conflict within Ukraine. That is, exactly. these tanks are not going to enable the, the Ukrainians to seize Russian territory. They're just not in a position to do that. I think the Americans are more worried about long-range missile systems that could be used to strike deeper and deeper into Russia, and they see that as a problematic escalation. So there's this fine line that Americans are drawing between the weapon systems that can hit the back of the Russian forces in Ukraine versus the weapon systems that might strike deep into Russia. And so I think that that's a challenge because some of those systems might also be handy for doing things like freeing Crimea. And so that's a challenge for them, but we don't have those weapon systems. So I don't think that's really a Canadian concern. It's an American concern. I do think we need to think about escalation and what that, you know, what the risks are. I, I think we have to be careful. Uh, this is not the first limited war that has been fought around the world. We, the world has been doing limited war more often than it's been doing unlimited war. But it does have kinds of other things going on at the same time, which is one of the international implications of the war was that Finland and Sweden were like, well, you know, we used to think that we could be neutral 
and now we're going to join NATO. But that's been held up uh, lately, as expected, more or less, by Turkey and uh, to a lesser extent by Hungary. Because NATO operates by consensus, we want to get all the countries in NATO to agree to every new member. Is there some kind of way we could fudge out of that and just ignore the Turks? It's a tough one because, you know, in the summer, Turkey and Finland and Sweden signed a trilateral. They tried to what one, you know, they tried to identify what would be, as Robert Putnam would call it, the set of winning conditions, right? This win set where everybody can be happy and ratification can happen. And, you know, uh, Erdogan is not going to be or, uh, you know, Erdogan is not going to be unduly beaten up at home. But the challenge is that the language in this memo, and I've read it, I've read it a couple of times, um, leaves such an amount of discretion that it's almost impossible for Sweden particularly to confirm that they have done absolutely every single thing to the letter of the limit of that memo in a way that's going to make Turkey happy. And this is basically what Turkey is playing on now. You know, they're saying, okay, you have outlawed the group, but we're not sure that you have sufficiently removed all of the sources of its financing by changing laws and X, Y, Z. And so it, it appears to be they're willing to kind of pick around the margins in, in the details in this agreement. What is interesting, on the other hand, is that, you know, you, we've seen a bit Finland as the country that is affected by this. Um, one might have thought Finland could have taken the opportunity to disconnect from Sweden and say, like, OK, let's just try and get in and then we'll see what you can do. But they've actually been quite firm in saying we think that this thing is the duo is what we want to do, even if we're having problems right now. And I, so I think that that's also been quite interesting for a country like Finland that, you know, as we know for many years was trying to pretty much not be on the top of the foreign policy agendas for <laughs> any, you know, and now seeing themselves in the news and in this, I think this is, it's quite interesting to see both the Finns and Swedes trying to thread this needle that has a hole that's quite small, but yet for all intents and purposes, everybody keeps on signaling that this should happen in Vilnius in June. So this should, they're still saying it should happen. So I'm, you know, we're, 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 Five months out. So let's keep crossing our fingers, I guess. There's a lot of bargaining time between now and then. Yeah, there is. Uh, and in some ways, I worry less about the Turks than about Hungary. Turkey is always trying to extract as much as it can. And it has a level of bitterness about how it's been treated. So therefore, it's going to make things difficult. Rightfully we're, so. I mean, you know, the Turks were extremely affected by what the U.S. did in Afghanistan, by what was going on in Iraq. I mean, of any NATO, NATO, yeah. NATO member, they have probably had the most externalities occur within their country from NATO policy in the last, you know, two decades. So, you know, I think there is, you know, but they have also done their fair share of letting themselves be known to be not the most happy NATO member. So it's a bit yeah. both ways, I think. Whereas Hungary is, you know, leading the backsliding of democracies and has been aiding the betting Putin in a variety of ways. Uh, Absolutely. And it's also noteworthy uh, that Turkey is the only country of NATO countries that actively purchases arms from Russia in large amounts. You know, this is problematic. They also purchase arms from China. There's actually no NATO countries that purchase any arms from China aside from Turkey. And so, you know, I think it also speaks a little bit to its willingness to, I don't want to say self-isolate, but its willingness to feel, and I, and I often... People want to say it's not linked to how difficult it has been for the EU to to for Turkey to enter into the EU. But I mean, this is all involving a lot of the same players. A lot of the players that are kind of making the process difficult in the EU are some of the same players that are also trying to deal with Turkey through NATO. And so I find it very difficult when people try to disconnect 
you know, those discourses, because it's like, it's frustrations that are related to some of the very same states and issues, but in different organizations. And so just because the United States is not in the EU to suspect that there's not a link is to me a little bit strange. Yeah. Yeah. I think these things are pretty complicated, but I, I still think that Turkey's going to lose the this year's competition as America's worst ally. Because they've got the Saudis who spent last year pumping up oil prices just before the election, hoping that Biden would lose. Uh, and they're still playing footsie with the Republicans. And then you've got Israel doing all kinds of stuff, including saying no to letting the United States take some of its stocks that it has lying around in Israel and moving and you know transporting those to Ukraine. Uh, they, the, the Israelis don't offend the Russians. On the other hand, the Israelis are attacking the Iranians, as we saw this week. A bunch of different places in, in Iran blew up. And so it's really strange to have Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia all on the same side with the Russians, because there's some natural tensions there that just are are going to cause that whatever that that relate those relationships to, you know, they're always going to have real friction. Yeah. So maybe the more that the Israelis remember that Iran is an adversary and Iran is is being very cozy with the Russians, that might might lead them to be a little bit less cozy. But one of the strange dynamics in all of this, which ties back to Orban, is the global right wing finds Russia attractive, whether that's Orban, Netanyahu, uh, the far the right wing of the Republican Party, which is all the Republican Party. And some elements within Canada are seeing Putin as the as the ally because he's he's not decadent. He's he's, you know, got all these values of traditional whatever stuff. And so you're seeing this global alliance of right wing stuff, but there's some basic splits there that that are going to cause them to have some problems and having the saudis and the israelis and the iranians on the same side is just not tenable in the long run so yeah, i would i mean it sounds like a bad game of risk already <laughs> i would wish the russians luck in their alliance management problem or their friend management problem but i don't want them to succeed so therefore exactly. i'm not going to wish them luck you know it's fun that we're talking about nato because not only is your book that came out last month the hot book on nato but there's another hot book on nato that Stephanie von Latke, who used to co-host this podcast and who is still a co-director of the CDSN, is on a, a book launch in Ottawa uh, on February 2nd, which is Thursday at 5 p.m. at the University of Ottawa. She wrote a book called Deploying Feminism, which is about how the imperatives to um, apply women, peace, and security to NATO has led to all kinds of interesting dynamics. And so our interview today is with Stephanie to talk about her book. So that is our segue to the interview segment. Always a pleasure to have you on Battle Rhythm, Anessa. Keep on rocking the the climate security uh, yes. research. Uh, this is really something that we're that the CDS is doing that you're you're leading on that we really appreciate. And good luck with the rest Watch of the semester. Our first briefing paper should be published any day now on what is a center of excellence for those of you that are wondering. And so, yes, please see the CDSN website for our upcoming research. Excellent. Well, good luck with the rest of the winter, and we'll see you in a few weeks back here on Battle Rhythm. Absolutely. Thanks again. Take care. So today on Battle Rhythm, it's a pleasure to bring back our old pal, Sophie von Latke, who is talking about her book, and her book's title is Deploying Feminism, The Role of Gender in NATO Military Operations. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thank you, Steve. I do miss Battle Rhythm. I remember every two weeks plugging in and having a debrief with you about news and about academic work in this space, about the CDSN. So 
I, I do miss our own little battle rhythm of recording interviews and our little pre-interview banter that we had at the beginning of, of uh, each episode, but I'm also now a uh, battle rhythm listener and it's been great to see new people come on board. And I think you have great chemistry with your co-hosts. So well done. Well, thank you. It's definitely a work in progress. You know, we started battle rhythm after I've known you for a long time. I'm not going to say how many years, uh, but uh, talking with uh, some of the other folks, most of the people that, that are now co-hosts are people I've only known for a couple of years. So there's a little bit less familiarity and they're also a little further away from, from our research. So it's uh, sometimes uh, interesting to get very different perspectives on the stuff that we've been talking about. But the focus today is on you, not on me or Battle Rhythm. It's to promote your book and your book launch in Ottawa, which is going to be on February 2nd at five o'clock at the University of Ottawa. Tell us why you decided to write this book besides that you needed to get become a full professor? <laughs> uh, that's a good question because sometimes when we look back on our research trajectories, uh, we notice these turns uh, in, in our research focus. And it's good to have a moment of introspection to ask ourselves why uh, we went in one direction or another. And, and to me, focusing on women, peace and security uh, happened in the context of previous research. It happened in the context of research on NATO and deterrence and nuclear sharing. And uh, I was traveling to Brussels regularly to do interviews in, in around 2009, 2010, which just goes to illustrate sometimes how long ideas take to come to fruition. Uh, but I was in, in Brussels doing an interview on extended nuclear deterrence and nuclear sharing. At the time, there were a lot of debates uh, around maybe changing nuclear sharing arrangements. Of course, in 2023, those debates seem moot. Uh, it's very much uh, more of a consensus in terms of uh, the alliance deterrence posture. But it's at that moment that I started to notice uh, through interactions with different NATO stakeholders and different NATO experts that when peace and security was becoming uh, part of the public diplomacy of, of NATO. And it just got me intrigued because when you think about NATO as a military alliance, the first thing that comes to mind is collective defense and deterrence. And then, you know, some of the out of area operations that were ongoing at the time, but women, peace and security is, is very rarely what comes up in a conversation when you're talking about NATO. So I, it got me really intrigued and that's how I started to study it and dig into it because I figured, you know, if I'm going to be a, a NATO and alliance politics experts, I should be able to speak to everything from nukes to <laughs> women, peace and security. So it came about in the context of, of fieldwork and interviews and then sort of flourished after that. So what's the book about? What are you trying to understand and what is your argument? What I was trying to understand is this sort of shift in discourse in the military. You know, for a long time, there had been a lot of professional barriers for women's inclusion and participation in the armed forces. And the argument was that, you know, greater diversity of this kind could undermine operational effectiveness. And in Western militaries and at NATO too, you started seeing this discursive shift where the opposite was being argued that you need to have more women and greater diversity within the armed forces because more diverse armed forces are more effective armed forces and women were key part of that equation of operational effectiveness. So this kind of 
shift in, in norms is really interested and coincided, of course, with the adoption of the women, peace and security agenda within a NATO context. And, you know, for those listening who are not familiar with the women, peace and security agenda, it was uh, initially uh, a resolution in the context of the uh, United Nations, uh, United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, that pushed for a greater recognition of the role of women in conflict and post-conflict situations, um, really recentered conversations around uh, sexual and gender-based violence in the context of war, and also um, really brought forth a new methodology of gender-based analysis for designing programming uh, at the UN. And uh, several other resolutions were adopted after that, but they're collectively known as the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And so you saw other international security organizations uh, adopting and adapting that Women, Peace and Security Agenda to suit their mission and, and purpose. And, and NATO was doing that in that 2007 to 2009 timeframe, both in terms of having a policy and having accompanying military directives. So uh, my primary interest was understanding the process by which uh, those policies were integrated into the day-to-day -day practices of NATO and really trying to investigate whether that was just a headquarters story, something that plays well for public diplomacy, or whether we truly saw a change in practice all the way down. And certainly, you know, when you look at the website, uh, the NATO website, or when you look at really uh, high visibility public diplomacy events that they've held, like for instance, uh, they had uh, Angelina Jolie a few years back doing mm -hmm. a press conference with the NATO Secretary General. You can ask yourself, you know, is this just for having a softer image for NATO? Is this, uh, you know, a, a public diplomacy stunt, or is there really something more that's there? So that's what piqued my interest. And in doing the research, what what became apparent, and what's the the crux of the argument in the book is that NATO and, and military actors can be real agents of change. And, and certainly we've seen that when it comes to the adoption of, of women, peace and security in the NATO context, but they'll do so on their own terms. And what you have is, when the military takes on something like women, peace and security agenda, they interpret the agenda through the lens of operational effectiveness, because that's a core part of how they do their work and of their military culture. And so when the military embarks on that process of interpretation and execution, the term I came up with to describe those interactions is, is norm distortion. And the way that I define uh, norm distortion in, in the book is this mechanism by which norm's original meaning is transformed in the process of its implementation. So an agenda like Women, Peace and Security, which was really meant to promote gender equality in the context of NATO and trying to convey the importance of uh, gender equality as a key ingredient to promoting more stable security outcomes becomes changed over the process of implementation. And the military, the way that it's implemented the Women, Peace and Security agenda is primarily through um, gender analysis and the operational planning process. So the question then becomes, well, how can we engage uh, more with women in local contexts so that we have better intelligence and our mission is more successful? So it helps the, the mission and it's very mission focused, but it's not necessarily people focused. And really at the core of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, you were trying to understand the differentiated impacts of conflict and war on uh, different segments of the population. You were recognizing the unique vulnerabilities of women and children in, in the context of conflict and co post-conflict situations. 
organizations. It's really not about making the military better at what they do. So, you know, in the book, I acknowledge that, that this is done. I acknowledge that it's not necessarily nefarious, but, you know, in, in the process of different civil military interactions uh, at NATO, this has been the result. And norm distortion was that the best way that I can convey uh, those dynamics from the headquarters all the way down to the tactical level. Well, that's a lot. So let's unpack some of this stuff. First, let's take a look at just what does this tell us about NATO? I mean, this is a book about applying feminism to, to the alliance. And so you learn a lot about all different kinds of things. So part of it is, is that you now know NATO in a different context from the, the nuclear stuff you're doing before. So what does this tell you about NATO as an organization? Uh, that you didn't know before? The first thing I'll mention is uh, some of the, the limitations of, of NATO became a bit more apparent uh, in terms of what NATO can do to change norms and practices and what are some key constraints. And I was aware of these uh, before, but they became more visible in the process of doing this particular project. And I'll give you an example. Peace and security agenda, the way that NATO has been most active is in promoting this discourse of uh, greater diversity will make the armed forces stronger, will make NATO more effective. And there's two main ways that they have done this. The first is by focusing on increased representation and participation of women. And the other, as I mentioned before, is by integrating it a gender analysis and the way that operational planning is done, you know, from the development of policy and directives at the strategic level all the way down to the tactical level. And for the latter, it's been fairly streamlined. You know, there have been uh, new positions created in the military gender advisors to assist commanders in knowing how to do that. Uh, there has been a lot of uh, directives and guidelines and reporting mechanisms to make sure that that gets done. It's been a bit thornier in terms of increasing the representation and participation of, of women because NATO ultimately relies on member states to provide people, right? And so NATO can change the composition of its own bureaucracy, so the hires under its control. But when it comes to, uh, let's say, take the example of uh, deployed contingents in the context of the mission, it really down downloads that responsibility to member states, and then member states, you know, will will decide uh, how many women they want to deploy as part of NATO operations. So there really has been no ownership on behalf of NATO to change practices on that front. And compared to the UN, that's been really interesting to see that parallel because the UN has set very specific targets for the number of civilian and military women they want to see as part of their own missions. But NATO has kind of drawn the line. And I mean, in your book with uh, Dave Arswald, you're, you're uh, very clear about describing the process by which NATO asks for different capability sets from its member states through the combined joint statement of requirements mm -hmm. and through this you know, the, the diplomatic and military interactions that ensue in terms of NATO getting the capabilities and troops that it needs to execute its missions. But this just hasn't been done when it comes to, you know, having women more represented in terms of the composition of troops uh, on NATO operations. And uh, it could be done, but it hasn't been done. So it was interesting to, to see these types of, of constraints between the high-level policy objectives that NATO has set for itself and the limits of NATO as an alliance, as an organization in terms of 
dictating the types of capabilities that its member states bring to the table. And it's, it seems especially controversial when it comes to the composition and representation of women as part of military personnel that member states uh, offer up to NATO activities. The old force generation is begging comes back to play in a different way. So in our book, David and I wrote about whenever any mission starts, NATO leaders have to go around asking for contributions and you get whatever you get. And the begging escalates to get more and more senior leadership to get involved. And your book then suggests that uh, this affects the the deployment of women, peace and security, because I guess countries will vary in how much they care about it. So therefore their contributions may you know, will vary in terms of how they, how, literally how many women they deploy that is part of the WPS agenda, WPS agenda. Not, it's not the entire agenda, obviously, but part of mm -hmm. it is just having bigger, more numbers and the members, the now, what, 30 members of NATO will vary in their, their commitment to it and also the availability of that. They vary in how many women they actually have serving in the key roles that are necessary to be filled in whatever the deployment is. Yeah, exactly. So NATO will talk a good game when it comes to uh, gender balancing or wanting more, more women on operations and certainly showcasing some meaningful roles that women have held. So, you know, for instance, when there was a woman commanding the NATO mission in Iraq and she happened to be Canadian uh, General Jenny Carignan, that was really held up as an example, sort of fulfilling these broader goals of uh, tied to women, peace and security. Mm. But it's it's not done by by design. It's done, you know, based on the the initiatives of ind individual member states. Um, but on the the gender analysis side, or incorporating a gender perspective in mm. NATO parlance to let's say the operational planning process, you see a lot more harmonization. And here is where I think something like a, an integrated military command structure is really important for having these common practices uh, because NATO kind of dictates the way that operational planning is done. And so when there are tweaks to, to that process or updates that are made, uh, you know, the 30 member states can be singing to the same sheet of music, so to speak. So on that front, the, the changes have been more meaningful in terms of changing military practices and you see less of that you know variation in terms of uh, what member states do uh, because when nato owns the mission that has you know a common operational planning process and if you integrate gender perspectives as part of that with the help of gender advisors and gender focal points you do see and you can track how this is done at each level all the way down to the mission level so that's what i observed is that you know on the composition of the armed forces there are some limitations in terms of what nato can do beyond you know its own hires and that's primarily at the head quarters and the key uh, supporting institutions. Uh, but uh, when it comes to changing military practice, you know, the idea of incorporating a gender analysis as part of operational planning is fairly new. Uh, and that's been more systematically done based on, you know, this common NATO framework. Okay. Well, that, that provides us with a bit of the notion of, of what's going on in the headquarters and all the rest. But one of the fun parts about it from my standpoint of, of, of reading your book and knowing you as a person is you got to go to some interesting places. And so you went to the Baltics, you went to Kosovo, and you went to Iraq. And before we get to the tourism question, did you see how these norms got deployed differently? And what, what shaped how they were deployed differently in the different places? Well, did it matter that Iraq was hotter? So therefore, you know, it was a more tense environment? 
than let's say Latvia or were things the same? Or were they different? And what do you think caused the differences if there were differences? Yeah. Uh, so there were some, some key differences. And of course that, that was an extremely fascinating part of, of doing the research. And I was lucky to get those fieldwork trips in right before COVID and then to to be able to follow up uh, throughout the writing process. Um, but yeah, Iraq, the Baltics, Kosovo, K4 were, were really different in terms of the, the mission context. But so it was really important to, you know, better understand this sort of mechanism of, of norm distortion was to really examine the, the processes by which you know, women, peace and security guidelines are institutionalized uh, in terms of the, the mission design and execution and how the commanders are, are kept accountable. And by, by looking at those things and uh, doing interviews and participant observations, but also getting a lot of written documents uh, in support of that work, I was also able to explain why we're seeing differences beyond just different mission contexts. And, and one of them is that uh, is NATO in charge or not of the operational planning process? And I think you'll recall when enhanced foreign presence was set up uh, in, in the Baltics, it was a framework uh, nation uh, concept. And so the authority was really delegated to NATO member states to you know, design their own battle groups. And some of them were really multinational battle groups, like the one that Canada has led and continues to lead. Uh, but there was a lot of variation across the four initial framework nations in terms of how they designed their, their battle groups and carried out their activities. And you see that reflected too in the Women, Peace and Security guidelines and the extent to which either attention is paid to the composition of the armed forces or incorporating that gender perspective as part of various mission activities. And that's where you see, you know, member states caring more about this stuff, like Canada doing more than member states who less systematically implement this within their own national armed forces versus in, in K4 or NMI, where NATO is really in charge of the mission and its operational component, you see those common guidance really informing the work of commanders, no matter which country is in the lead, because ultimately NATO has these reporting requirements and has these common practices that will make implementation uh, more similar across its different missions. So appointing and deploying a gender advisor, for instance, is something that is done systematically in NATO missions, but is not done systematically when individual member states deploy. And it was not done systematically in the context of enhanced forward presence when we compared the four different battle groups but both k4 and mi had you know as part of each rotation a gender advisor uh, and were tasked with also developing a structure of gender focal points within the way the mission was set up so you did see more systematic implementation there and that that military command structure from nato is is really important again in, in harmonizing those practices so that was uh, one of the, the ways where you, you saw some key differences. Another important difference was with the NATO mission in Iraq uh, compared to, let's say, K4, which was a much uh, older mission in the context of NMI from the ground up. What had been built into the lines of effort is a focus on uh, women, peace and security and, and gender. And so what you're doing by building that into the lines of effort from the get-go is you're creating a, an accountability structure from the ground up to make sure that these uh, women, peace and security guidelines and directives are systematically implemented. Whereas for, for K4, 
um, you know, which is a, a mission that is has been around for more than two decades uh, that had not been done. That was not part of the core uh, lines of effort. So even though you had a gender advisor there uh, to make sure that that advice was taken into account uh, with the commander and, and with different uh, cells within the mission, not having that line of effort there uh, meant the implementation was a bit more uneven. So the liaison and monitoring teams, for instance, that do uh, local population engagement on a day-to-day -day basis really understood and took to heart the importance of uh, understanding the social makeup of the populations uh, with which they, they were interacted, but maybe the uh, riot control units, for instance, you know, didn't uh, incorporate it as much. So from one team to the next, you saw uh, different levels of, of awareness and, and they were taking it into account differently or, or sometimes not at all. So again, if it's not a line of effort, it won't mm -hmm. be Know, focusing uh, all of the energy and attention across various functions in the way that it was done, let's say, uh, in the NATO mission in Iraq. So, so to me, those were two important differences that are, are worth mentioning and where you can really see why they were different in terms of how NATO works and then sort of the processes and accountability structures that support that work. Uh, before we get to some of the other bigger lessons, what was it like doing research in Iraq? So there was a lot of preparation that went into it. Uh, and of course, NATO is a complex organization. And when you're trying to secure approval for a mission visit like that, you know, you, there are a lot of boxes that you need to check, both in terms of the approvals. And here there's always more than one chain of command. NATO has to approve it, but also the, the country commanding the mission also has to provide that, that approval. And in this case, you know, I needed access also to a U.S. run base. So I needed some American approvals as well. So just navigating that was uh, time consuming and, and complex, but, you know, those are, are, are necessary and they're there for good reason. So a lot of preparatory work went into it. And then, you know, making sure that you travel uh, safely. And, and that involved also some pre-deployment uh, training that happened very conveniently in Kingston, where, where I live. But that was really useful in terms of getting me into the, the mindset of where I was going and not to take any unnecessary risk. And also, you know, for the people I'd be interacting with in the context of the mission is also to be a more responsible participant in that context in terms of knowing uh, what and where the risks are and, and how to behave appropriately in, in that context. So for an academic that's not used to, to doing this kind of field work, it was really useful to, to engage in that training and to at least share some of the vocabulary <laughs> with uh, some of the military uh, people I'd be interacting with so that if, if there was a crisis or if there was an emergency, I could you know understand what was going on communicate effectively and know what to say and, and do. Now, I'm not saying my reaction would have been perfect because I think you're you're always frazzled in those types of contexts, but that preparatory work really is helpful. And I'm very grateful that they were made available to me right before I, I was meant to travel. Once my objective was to have all of the proper access that I needed to answer my questions and to, to meet with different types of, of NATO and U.S. players, you know, who were involved in the NATO mission in Iraq, but more broadly, the U.S.-led uh, mission that was sort of co-located and uh, where a lot of coordination needed to happen. And so figuring out, you know, 
who to interview in the time frame that that you were there and then uh trying to get to fill your days as much as possible with with new meetings that are proposed to you uh while also not overstaying your welcome <laughs> because you want you know get everything that you need in terms of of the information but you're also very very cognizant that you know hosting an academic deploys a lot of um, demands a lot of staff resources and, and you have to be sort of handled everywhere that you go so there was this this balancing act in terms of planning the field work where you want to do all of the interviews and participant observation that, that you need for your research but also being mindful that you know with with every request with every visit you are causing a, a disruption in, in that kind of mission context so paying attention to to those considerations was was important to me uh and then you know i have to say everyone was so very generous with their time in terms of uh answering my questions and and being very candid and really coming uh, at the conversation with the mindset that the research could yield some important recommendations for, for NATO in terms of uh, how to do this uh, more efficiently in, in the future. Uh, and by this, I mean, of course, uh, you know, all uh, implementing the policies and directives tied to the women, peace and, and security agenda. And then thinking about the importance of gender equality in, in the context of NATO activities and, and its mission objectives. Any juicy stories from your time in the field, or was it uh, pretty straightforward, just a matter of getting from point A to point B, or did you have to haggle for anything? Or <laughs> um, Well, I think I would say that the most interesting uh, conversations didn't end up happening where I thought they would. So you may think, you know, your one-on-one -on -one with the, the commander is going to be your most important interview. Uh, but, you know, very often and I was eating at a cafeteria, let's say, and you end up having an impromptu conversation uh, with someone and somehow, you know, on a personal level, those exchanges and conversations are, are really important because you get to stop and disconnect from, from your very business, like focus on your research and actually stop to, to feel what the day-to-day -day is like in that context. And I also think that's an important part of the, the research enterprise. And so I wouldn't call this a juicy story, but I would, you know, kind of change the focus of, of the question to say that, you know, it's important to be a, a person and a, and a human being in that context and to pay attention to how people are living their lives in, in those deployed environments. And that's also part of understanding that that operating environment above and beyond kind of the, the indicators and factors or variables that you may be focused on. So taking the time to stop and fully be present and having these meaningful interactions with, with folks from the cafeteria to a gym, that was important to me. Cool. Well, let's get back to the larger themes. Your book was about deploying feminism as in terms of how does the, the NATO and the, its component militaries and civilian enterprises develop and implement feminist norms so that way the military can you know be better, be good at the inclusion of women in the various endeavors. What did it teach you about feminism, either feminist IR theory or about the striving for equality among the genders in terms of what would you tell a feminist about what you learned as opposed to what you would tell an IR theorist? Oh, thank you for, for that question. And, and I think, you know, when you see that the title of, of the book, Deploying Feminism, you know, it, it reads like an oxymoron because you know, a big part of the feminist project is undoing <laughs> patriarchal structures and the military is is one of those those structures that can 
you've seen as uh, being oppressive towards women, uh, both in terms of how it runs internally, but also in terms of the activities that it that it carries out. So deploying feminism, when when you read it, can seem a bit like a cheeky title. And in a way, for me, it illustrates a lot of the contradictions uh, that I've seen, because these are ideas that were born out of a lot of activism from feminist groups and, and women's groups lobbying the UN uh, to, to adopt this women, peace and security agenda. But then a lot of these women's groups and, and civil society organizations over time became really disheartened and critical with how that agenda took shape and was implemented, again, because they're implemented by civilian and military organizations uh, that have their own way of working. And uh, those ways of working might not be in line with the way that feminists would like to, to see change happen. And so there's that that tension that's there uh, throughout uh, in the book. And I wanted to represent that certainly in the title. And feminist uh, international relations scholarship was a, a really big part of my literature review because if, if I mean and you can imagine this like if you if you do a lit review on uh, women peace and security in the NATO context the bulk of the scholarship will be from a, a feminist international relations perspective and those scholars have, had already commented on the militarization of the women peace and security agenda so you know it's not like I was surprised in terms of the interactions I, I witnessed and the particular interpretation of the women peace and security agenda that NATO took on but you know, my own take on it was understanding why why that happens organizationally. Uh, and, uh, you know, you were really happy to, to read that in my book, but that the framework I really drew from in terms of building the research design was that principal agent framework of when civilian decision makers adopt something like the women, peace and security agenda, they, they provide some general guidance that's then in the context of NATO interpreted by military actors, you know, at, at those strategic operationals and tactical levels. And so if we're noticing that there's a militarization of the agenda on the ground, we have to ask questions about the types of civilian guidance that's provided and the types of civilian oversight uh, that is present all the way down so, so that that distortion doesn't happen, so that that interpretation or that focus on gen gender equality is not lost through the process of an implementation. So, you know, th that feminist IR point of departure of the militarization of women, peace and security agenda was really important for my work. And then I drew from some literature in civil military relations and norms and in international relations to help me understand the why and how, and then build that broader research design uh, to, to understand the really intra-alliance dynamics that lead to the, the implementation and how missions have been adapted to take these gender considerations into account. So that's what I would say. And it was, you know, really interesting intellectual journey to to draw from these different literatures. But I have to say, Steve, like to me, it was this fear that by combining you know, feminist IR insights with the more traditional IR research design that I would end up pleasing no one. <laughs> with the book. But I have to say that the response has been uh, really great um, so, so far. I mean, both in terms of conversations I've had with uh, with colleagues and other scholars, but also with with practitioners. My objective with the book was to be able to speak to different intellectual communities. And, you know, I, I was pleased to to find that both feminist IR and more traditional, let's say, alliance politics scholars have mm -hmm. engaged with, with the book. And also that it remained uh, accessible for an audience of policymakers and military practitioners. And, 
And this is where I took a bit more liberty in terms of how I wrote the book compared to my first book, which was a, a book from my dissertation work. And, you know, over the course of a decade, how you might adapt the, the tone of your voice as a scholar and as a researcher. And in, in this book, in Deploying Feminism, I really wanted the book to be accessible, uh, to be uh, as free as possible of, of academic jargon. Uh, yes, to have a fulsome lit review, but also, you know, to keep things really uh, accessible in terms of having a broad audience and, and readership so that, you know, you can take away some, some recommendations for the book and it could be used, for instance, uh, in a military academy or, you know, as part of a pre-deployment briefing drawing from the examples from the fieldwork. So I was imagining all kinds of ways that the book could appeal to different types of audiences. And it was finding that, you know, striking that right balance in terms of, of tone for writing this. You want that scholarly rigor, but you also want to have a book that's comprehensible and accessible to a wider audience. Well, let's say you have a narrow audience. Imagine yourself in a room with the head honchos. That would be General Cavoli, the, who is Secure, the head of the military head of NATO, and Jen Stolenberg, the secretary general, what would you tell them now that you've done all this research that you wouldn't have told them 10 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I would keep, um, I think, the focus on uh, the role of women in, in the organization, because I really uh, do think it's a little bit of a of a cop out for NATO to say, you know, we're just going to let member states decide on, on the representation of participation of, of women in NATO armed forces when they have you know, those force generation tools that we alluded to earlier to set goals and clear capability targets. And so in those conversations that let's say uh, DSACUR is having, but certainly the guidance provided by the Secretary General and SACUR are really important in terms of setting that broader context and, and the parameters, is to raise the idea of deploying more women on operations uh, with the goal of also recentering the importance of gender equality as part of mission objectives. And, you know, one of the reasons for this is, of course, engaging with women stakeholders locally in mission context is really important. And having women as part of NATO teams is very important for those interactions to take place, but also very important for NATO's credibility as an organization that is promoting gender equality, that is promoting the women, peace and security agenda, because when you're coming to Iraq or Kosovo, and, you know, really playing up those principles and norms and asking for those host countries to make some important changes in their own policies and military practices, and that you're coming up, for instance, with an all-male delegation to, to a meeting or <laughs> uh, to, to a roundtable, you know, there, there's a real credibility uh, gap there. And I think that NATO needs to do better on that front. And, you know, there are mechanisms, existing mechanisms that are not leveraged within NATO uh, to have more women represented in terms of NATO missions on both the civilian and military side of the house. Uh, and then I, I, I would put a bit more pressure, I know we've been talking a lot about the military, but I would uh, put a bit more pressure on sort of the, the civilian actors in this context. So that means in terms of the political uh, leadership at NATO, it's also about really articulating clearer guidance for military actors who are carrying out NATO activities and, and really fulfilling those, those broader goals. Uh, and then civilian oversight uh, all the way down. And very often when you look at the mission level, you see that there's a big, and understandably so, but a big disparity between uh, civilian and military representation as part of the, of the mission. 
And uh, I think that especially in, in the headquarters, that civilian presence is very important, both in terms of providing advice to the commander, but also in executing a more meaningful women peace and security strategy at the mission level. And so I do think it's not only women that are missing in these contexts, but it's also civilians. And even at the tactical level, when you look at that command structure, you, you see the dominance of, of military actors and, and I think more civilian personnel would improve the way that women peace and security agenda is implemented in the various uh, host countries where NATO activities are taking place. Excellent. I guess the the last question I've got is, given this work you've done over the past 10 years, uh, does it cause you to look at the war in Ukraine differently in terms of either the war itself or how the outside actors are acting, how NATO is behaving in all of this? Do you see things differently now? with the new lenses you have on that correct for norm distortion? Yeah, I do think viewing NATO as an important organization for socializing new ideas and new norms that impact the, the military realm. And what I mean to say by that is that uh, NATO engages with its partners and Ukraine is one of those partners. And, and over the years, Lots of interactions, uh, trainings, conferences, workshops help socialize these, these ideas. And women, peace and security is part of the conversations that it has with its partners. And I do think that, that socialization of the women, peace and security agenda with, with partners is important and is central to a lot of the key considerations in and surrounding the Ukraine war from the role of women combatants within the Ukrainian forces mm -hmm. to also, you know, how to plan for assistance to the predominantly female refugee population. So when you think of what NATO has done and what individual member states have done on the margins, uh, there are some, some key considerations there uh, on both the civilian and military side that have a big impact in terms of how NATO and its member states are reacting to the war. But for Ukraine too, internally, the importance of those interactions with NATO and with individual member states through training or other activities have had a big impact on the practices. And we see that now. And that goes from tactical training to socializing uh, ideas of women, peace and security and related norms. Oh, that's terrific. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us today about your book. I had a chance to read it last summer and it's latest, almost published version of it. And I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about it next week at the University of Ottawa. And for those folks who are interested, all you have to do is search my Twitter feed or go online and look for Von Latke, Ottawa, and you should be able to find it. And you can tweet at us if you're curious as to the details of the talk. Uh, I'm looking Looking forward to seeing you in town, Stephanie, and congratulations on a, on a kick-ass book. Thank you so much, Steve. And it meant the world to me that you were willing to look at the very final draft of the book before it went into production. I mean, that, that feedback was, was really essential for me. And uh, please come to the book talk tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> and the book is available at all the usual outlets including the publisher which is oxford university press and amazon and all the other outlets where you buy your smart books about international relations thanks steve for having me on battle rhythm it's a pleasure to have you back hope to talk to you again in the future sounds good see you soon take care